welcome to the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to talk to my mother, Wanda Baustert, the inspiration behind our Wanda's Water tidbits that we add to the end of our usual podcasts. Welcome, Mom. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Yep. And this podcast is just about having fun. We're not going to be too technical for this once. So for those of you who don't know, Wanda's Water Tidbits are the part of the show that we dedicate to my mother, Wanda. And because over the years, she sent me tons of articles and trivia about water. And this is a part of the podcast where we get to celebrate and share something that's unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. Okay, you ready to go, Ma? I'm ready. All right. So today we're going to cover four tidbits. The first is an octopus garden with thermal vents, which sadly has nothing to do with the beetles. I'm so sorry to our (laughs) former editor, Larry, about that. And the second one is going to be a really cool optical illusion. And I hadn't heard of it before. Had you, Mom? No, I had not. Not even in National Geographic. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Uh, And then we're going to go over Wanda's tips on how to use an old-fashioned outhouse and how that ties into Typhoid Mary. So, all right, let's get going. So I'm really excited about this octopus garden and talking with you, Mom, about it. You saw the article as well, correct? Yeah, I've read it in three different places now. And it's pretty wild because, like, octopuses are known to be very solitary. They leave everyone alone. They don't want to be in a space together. And the researchers going to Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, and they found what they called an octopus garden. They found grapefruit-sized octopus, octopi, octopuses. How do we, we'll go with octopi. Uh, (laughs) Who knows if I'm right or not. And the water was really different. So they found, you know, these usually solitary animals all together. And it was just something that was so unusual. It's like, you know, finding a gaggle of engineers, right, mom? Right. Gaggle's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) And they keep going back to this. So this marine sanctuary is like uh, 1.3 square miles of area. And they found 20,000 of these suckers all in the same place. And then a subsequent report says that not only are they going north of Monterey Bay, but they also go all the way down to Costa Rica. And they have found it's this huge vent that technically is supposed to be extinct, but is warming the waters up uh, to 41 uh, and up to 51.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty warm. (laughs) I know. I'm like, that's not warm enough. I'm not swimming there myself. Uh, what can I say for you? <laughs> and I know. I know. We're here in Arizona. We're like, we don't get in the water till it's been 100 degrees for several days to warm up oh, the water. Okay. I know. I know. Y'all up there in the Northeast just kind of live differently. I know. But they were saying this was the biggest group of octopi ever found in the world. Usually the waters are about 34.9 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.6 degrees Celsius. But so that almost seven to 10 degree difference is making a big difference. And what did you read about how that made a difference? The difference is the timing that it takes to hatch their eggs, where it could be up to 13 years in a regular ocean temperature. Now it's down to two years or less. So that is a big division 
between the past and present with these octopi. And it can mean some amazing things for the food source of the uh, world and having them more plentiful than what they normally are found in the ocean. I kind of wonder about that. You know, whenever you have like an explosion growth of of things, if there's not something there to kind of balance that out, they're just going to naturally die. So I'm like, are you raising and hatching your eggs faster and faster, but there's nowhere for them to go kind of thing? Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of like turtles and many other ocean animals that they go out into the oceans. Now, the ocean isn't that big that they could not continue to go out into uh, the Asian countries uh, waterways because they're not that far away for them to swim. They're a vital source of food for Asians. Now, I never liked chewing on suction cups myself, but, you know, they, (laughs) you know, they really like it. And it is uh, is a prize to them to be able to eat one. Yeah. It has a, a lot of health benefits. So two thoughts came with to me with this is one, here is a sea creature that is isolated almost their whole life. And here they are clustering. It's like all the girls have come together. They have their eggs and their babies in nice, soft seawater and uh, or ocean sand and then perfect temperature of ocean water the sun coming down into the water and they're all you know like you know any of us who are you know pregnant moms you know we talk about to each other about our experiences and what we're going through and all that kind of stuff and here they all are together and I think that's kind of amazing that this is a temperament a characteristic of these that has never been seen before because they've always been isolated I agree and you know I'm just like it's almost like a spa retreat (laughs) It's not the way you were describing it. You know, the water, soft sands, warm. Yeah, yeah. You're going to, uh, you know, a warm beach to get away from the other kids and your husband and whatnot. You know, and you're just settling down. <laughs> wow, mom, really? <laughs> so glad I was, I'm the oldest and the most favorite. <laughs> but the other thing that kind of scared me was that this vent that's getting so warm is supposed to be completely dormant it's not supposed to be making heat (laughs) so if it's making heat that makes me kind of interested to see what's going to happen because that means there is a volcanic action you know down below where these um or at least some kind of heat coming up through something is boiling yeah like the old volcano probably is not active but maybe there's another one springing up inside it Kind of like Disney movie Moana, you know, where you've got the volcano who, you know, sings and he's lonely. And then, the, and then it's, you know, his girlfriend to be wife comes up, you know, beside him and then they stay happy for the rest of their lives. So, you know, that just kind of to me is very interesting that there is action there that no one knew about. Yeah. And it's a different way to finding it, I think, a different way to find it. So, yeah. like, you weren't expecting Octopus to help show you where a, a vent is. I don't think that's like the normal thought process there. So going on to another hydrothermal vent though, but this one we knew about and is still active, should we say? We're going to go on to that, the discussion on the optical illusion. And 
so there was a hydrovent that the remotely operated vehicle or ROV named Sebastian explored in the March of 2019. So as things are coming out, you know, uh, being pushed up out of the earth, it's building mineral towers. And some of them are like 60 feet tall. So it's kind of like going into a cave, but the stalactites are coming up from the ground. And they build something called like a flange, which is like an overhanging, uh, which is where the really cool phenomenon happens. I don't know. Did you get a chance to see the video that I sent? Yes. Yeah, I did. They're beautiful. It is. So Mandy Joy, professor of the University of Georgia and the lead scientist of the Schmidt Ocean Institute, was the one to discover this optical illusion in the Gulf of California. So it has been seen somewhere else, but this is about 6,500 feet below in the ocean, about 2,000 meters. And underneath these overhang, that heated water gets trapped and it creates like a mirror. So the first time you're looking at it, you look on the underside of the rock or under that overhang, and it looks like it's just this flat level surface and it's a perfect reflection. So it's kind of like looking into a river or not a river, but a body of water and you see your own reflection in it. But then if you turn to the side, you can see into the water itself. And that's the kind of experience that they were having is that the mirror surface disappears. And what they found underneath those flanges were glittering minerals. And they said it twinkled like the night sky. So mirror surface, go to the side of it and you see the twinkling of the minerals underneath it. I'm like, that just blows my mind. That is so cool to see something wild like that. I've only snorkeled. I haven't scuba dived like you and dad. And maybe I don't want to go down that low. You know, it takes an ROV, but I'm like, that would be so cool to see in person. And basically the water temperatures has to be about 690 degrees Fahrenheit or 366 degrees Celsius without boiling. So that's from pressure, helping it keep from boiling. And then that less dense water rises and basically kind of gets trapped underneath that flange. And that's where you get that mirror effect. So I find, I find nature so amazing. When I was in the seventh grade, I had to do a report on the ocean and they had just found that fish that has the teeth that stick out from his jaws. And it has that little flangey that comes off of his head and has a little light bulb. Oh, you mean anglerfish? Maybe. But that came from very low depths in the ocean where we weren't able to go when I was younger. And finally, they, you know, uh, developed a way of getting down there in a submersible. And they found that fish. And there were several that were just so unique and so beautiful that are down in that depth and thriving. And Mm -hmm. so to me, that was just so awesome. We had just started the space race, but I found the ocean to be uh, just so many miraculous things down there that we haven't ever seen or explored. Uh, And then to read these two articles, it just further strengthens my love of how nature is taking care of themselves and how our world was created. Yeah, I think it's really pretty darn cool too. Maybe because we grew up with National Geographic all around the house. but That could be true. But, you know, also you had lust for learning like your father. And so, you know, whatever was sitting in front of you, you picked up and read. I didn't have time to do that because I was changing diapers. 
but <laughs> well you know yeah chasing five of us that I have tried to make up time you know since mm -hmm. diapers aren't around anymore I've always loved learning and seeing what the world has for us that is new and different and amazing and so now we have the deep sea that is just now really starting to get chartered and we have you know space in all of its infinite varieties so yeah I, I'm thinking it's pretty cool to be alive right now and then I go drive in traffic and then I, <laughs> I have second thoughts <laughs> you know six lanes of traffic on a on a weekend stay home and, and enjoy it you know or in a small group <laughs> there you go there you go so now I wanted to cover something that you you have a unique perspective on not all of our listeners will have had experience with these but uh you grew up with some some of this uh the outhouses right when i was a girl my grandmother uh was still alive my dad was from uh south carolina and he and his brothers and mother and father all were sharecroppers when they were young and when my dad came back from world war ii he decided he was not going to go back and do that again and so he moved to the city and uh, did that. And the other two, two other brothers did the same thing. We had one brother who stayed in the farming. Okay. And there was no such thing as indoor bathrooms whatsoever. So what started the development of this process of using an outhouse was one time when I went down to visit and I had to go and dad wouldn't stop because we're almost there. I feel like we've been almost there for an hour. That probably <laughs> were <laughs> to be honest so, anyway, we, we pulled into grandmother's front yard and before the car even got put in park i was out and running to the outhouse and i went and flung open her door got bombarded with all these flies and and bugs and stuff and i didn't have time <sighs> to worry about it and so i jumped on the toilet and as soon as i started uh eliminating uh they came flying up or out of the hole and because they were so angry <laughs> how old were you i was such a little kid were you like what eight i think i was like eight ten years old okay that's what i thought this is quite traumatizing it was very traumatizing and the bows were very big they were beautiful i love their colors but i after that you know <laughs> that was the only thing uh, only benny i had so usually if we only had to urinate we went in the backyard and my mother would stand out there and, and watch over us. And anything else had to go back to the back. And so I decided, I got to go. I got to come up with something. And that's how I developed these steps. Okay. Why don't you walk us through them? Okay. I will be glad to do that. Now, you don't have to be explicit, though, Mom. All right. I will try not to be. Okay. Okay. I'll let y'all's imagination go. First, you have to gather a six and a half foot rope, or at least that's what I had to, because that's how far it was uh, tying the ends to the outhouse door to the edge of the woods. It has to be thin, but it has to be strong because you don't want to trip over it in your hurry to get to the bathroom. Okay. Gather a big pile of pine cones near the end of the rope. So you're going to close the door and lock it, and then you're going to string that rope out to the back edge of the woods, and you're going to pile a whole bunch of pine cones right there. Okay. And you could use rocks, but it's best not to because it will damage the wood in the outhouse and can cause splinters. Which is its own kind of problem. Yes. 
These need to be avoided at all costs as they're hard to remove, especially without help. Got it. Then you, it's best if you bring your own toilet paper if you're unsure of what materials have been provided in the outhouse. You never knew with grandmother what she had in there. So mom always had Kleenex that she handed us when we ran. Uh-huh. And then because uh, you could find magazines, corn cobs, newspapers, and or old mail. Then you get a tree branch. And it has to have multiple branches and full of leaves. And it needs to be longer than your arm. And then that is set there by the pine cones. Okay. I'm like, there's a lot to this. <laughs> well, it gets a little uh, consuming. Yes, that's true. Next, you tie the end of the string on the door handle and you stretch it to the woods. And then what you want to do when you've got to go, you pull that rope as hard as you can because you want that door to slap the side of the outhouse. And that gets rid of all the critters or the insects and stuff that are above the holes. They come flying out. And then you take, now my grandmother had a two-seater. Okay. I have seen up to six seaters at different people's houses. Seaters meaning the holes in the outhouse. Yeah. For people to go. And so then you stand back because, you know, you've already opened the door. And then you start lobbing these pine cones into the holes in the outhouse. And what that does is that that makes the flies and insects that are down in the bottom really mad. I learned a word uh, later on, a couple of years later, the word smorgasbord. And I thought that was a really cool way of describing these insects that were down in there. They did not want to be disturbed from their feeding. And... Uh, <laughs> Marcus board. I don't know that it's ever been used that way, people. So this is great. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so now you've gotten all the supplies out of the top and you've got all the flies and whatnot out of the bottom. And then you can go in and pick a hole. Now, if yours, if the outhouse is leaning because the water, uh, the ground that it is sitting on has been eroded by rain or, or whatnot. Yeah, then yeah. it might rock a little bit. And so that can be kind of scary. So you lean as far forward as you can on that hole without missing. And that way you can easily flop your feet on the floor and jump out if it starts to fall. Now, when I was a kid, my cousins actually went into that hole. And <gasps> there was a whole lot of hollering and going on over there and my mom would let us go over and see if he was okay but anyway so that's <laughs> possibility <laughs> y'all didn't leave him right he eventually got out i did not make that up now use the toilet paper you brought or you can use the sears and robot catalog the christmas wish book newspapers and all mail my mom did not like for us to use newspapers because it left black print ink on our bottoms that was hard to get off uh, the caution that I have is that if you use corn cobs, you need to make sure they're fairly fresh because they get really hard after sitting for a while in an outhouse and they can rip and tear delicate skin. Okay, so lessons learned here. Lessons, lessons learned. learned. Yes, exactly. And my brother can attest to all of this. Uh, when you leave, remember... <laughs> I'm not <close>. asking him. <laughs> I'm not asking him. When you leave... Remember to close the outhouse door so that you don't have to evacuate small critters and rodents that get in there. For some reason, they like that. So make sure you always close the door and lock it. 
stretch your string out, reposition all of your supplies so that you have them ready for the next uh, toilet run. And thank goodness I didn't have to use it very often. We only went a couple of times uh, down there a year. And I never remember seeing my mom and dad use it ever. But we kids had to. <laughs> so. You know, I remember the one time we went down there and I was informed I had to use one, the used outhouse. And I decided to hold it as long as I could. <laughs> I, I had heard stories. <laughs> <laughs> he hated it as much as the rest of us did yeah yeah that but they they generally threw all their waste into the backyards mm -hmm. and uh at my uncle's house they actually built her a bathroom on, attached onto the house and they had everything all plumbed and and uh primed and it would look great i was so happy for them and then we walked out in the back and that's where the hoses ended it wasn't oh. going into any septic tank or hole or anything. It was just running out onto the ground. So that really horrified me as a kid because I did know about disease and stuff. I yeah. did know about the insects that cause eye uh, infections and just all kinds of stuff. So, you know, as I got older, I understood a little bit better and hated them even more. So... <laughs> Not the family members that the outhouses, right? I don't know. They're kind of up there too. So, <laughs> not going there. Good idea. You know, but that leads us though. You know, talking about that illness and stuff of not taking care of things, and you know, kind of reason why outhouses aren't in vogue anymore, uh, is because they were. You could pass illness along. You could contaminate your water sources or your neighbor's water source uh the aquifers and things like that and there was a body of water back behind that but i don't know where it went i only ever saw it once but with my experience of just being at my grandmother's and my cousin's house uh, i know there's a lot of countries all over the world who don't have modern bathrooms they have yes. the same type facility i wish so there was some way that we could help them to be healthier with having better hygiene and uh, elimination of a waste, yeah. you know, human waste. Well, and talking about the disease and stuff that you were talking about kind of leads us into our fourth tidbit, actually. Correct. Typhoid, Mary. This always intrigued me because of my outhouse experience. But there was a book that I read and it was Terrible Typho Typhoid, Mary. A True Story of the Deadliest Cook in America by Susan Campbell Bartoletti, okay. who was a Newbery Honor winner. She did a very good job of writing that book and showing humanity as well as giving truth, you know, where it needed to be told and stuff. So it was one of the best books that I've read about her. But uh, Mary came from Ireland when she was 13. And... She started working as a servant in, uh, in homes. You know, she dusted, cleaned, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And then she branched into being a cook. And it was a really good job for her because she was very good at it. And uh -huh. she was very creative. And she began working for rich people because she could make things, you know, so pretty and nice and the setup arrangement as well as it tasting well. And so she found herself working for some very 
rich people. And regretfully, over time, by 1907, they had started to compile the cases of typhoid that they were finding. Mm-hmm. Basically, put them on a, on a map kind of deal. And- yes, exactly. And there was a guy who was actually the very first sanitation engineer, George Soper, and he was also a, a typhoid expert. And he spent time, uh, he was finally able to get approval from the city sanitation group to go in and take samples out of the outhouses. And that just doesn't sound fun. I mean, like any wastewater person would agree that's that would not be the funnest sampling to have to do. But so kudos to him for doing it. That's dedication. Well, that's true. And the science of it, I guess, made doing it, you know, worth it because he was pretty amazing. He went to neighbors' houses and he just canvassed a whole area and then took them back, processed them and canvassed another area. And so he was able to find the areas where the typhoid had developed. Mm-hmm. So then he had to go and interview all the people in the houses where the typhoid was found. And then he had to come up with a common denominator. And there were over 200 people who were affected by typhoid in these areas. So what he did was he went and was trying to get samples of fecal matter and urine to be able to test primarily for the typhoid. And Mary refused to do that. That was her private business and nobody was going to do that. And she wasn't given any samples. She didn't care what she said. And so she got out of it for a long time. But then the typhoid kept going and it got to the point where she could be the only one who could have been the carrier. And this is a bacterial infection. They couldn't have seen it. Yeah, it developed in the gallbladder. And there were people, there were 50 to 200 who got it, 50 who was directly exposed to her. And then the rest of them were from being exposed to those who had it. There were several deaths. Amazing thing about her story is that the world found out for the first time what a healthy carrier was. And the New York Medical Society is the one that coined that phrase directly because of Mary. She did not have. Yeah, she didn't have it. She didn't have it, but she was carrying it. And so if she wasn't doing good hand sanitation when she was cooking, then it could spread to other people. Okay. So this is a part where I'm like, all it took was washing her hands or wearing right. gloves and things. And this woman could not do that. Well, she was <laughs> washing, but you know, it's more than just splashing in water. Uh, yes. to get typhoid, you have to have a temperature of the water temperature has to be such a point, And then you have to use special soap where anything would have lessened it to be able to not spread it. It had to be under certain conditions. And of course that was unheard of then. Mm-hmm. It would have been a pain in the butt. It, yeah, it would have been, especially if they're wanting dinner now, you know, yeah. or she would have to keep her hands clean all day long. But, um, you know, that was just unheard of in the early 1900s. But what was another amazing thing was not only did George Sofer find out all the particulars about it so that they could go out into the rest of the country and find other cases, is that there were 50 healthy carriers found nationwide directly between 
are because of George Soper and Mary Mellon, who was typhoid Mary. Well, and this is one of the first really documented cases of wastewater epidemiology, what we call now. I mean, that's how we track polio, typhoid, COVID, like all those things. But she was one of those first cases that that came from. And what I thought was like, every time they found her, she was always cooking for somebody. Yeah. Well, then that's what she was such a great cook. Everybody wanted her. And so, you know, it was, you know, a catch-22 situation. She worked for eight families in all. And of course, she did garden parties as well as holiday parties or dinner parties or whatever. She spent three years in isolation in North Brothers Island, uh, right off of, uh, she was totally isolated, uh, not in close to New York City. And then after those three years, they allowed her to go onto the island and she became a laundress. And by working as a laundress, the water and the lye and stuff in the soap Mm -hmm. would kill anything that she might pass on. Yeah. So I thought that was a great job for her to do so that she you know, had something to do. She could fulfill or feel that she's done something. But, uh, you know, be a laundress was amazing. But I can't imagine it was very fun compared to cooking. No, no. Yeah. But anyway, she died in 1938 and her autopsy revealed that she did carry typhoid in her gallbladder. That's wild. So, you know, here we've learned so much. This one woman, you know, was kind of executed with words and people's anger for something that she didn't know of. No one believed in something like that at that time. That was so new. Yeah, that was new science. Yeah, a whole new science. Look at it now and you're like, well, duh, but that's only because we've had a hundred years. Right. Of, you know, oh yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. You know, Who knew that sanitation engineers were so vital to our everyday life? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you those in it, (laughs) believe it. They probably don't appreciate it like I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, not many of us have had an outhouse experience like that, mom. But uh, personally, I just don't care for pit toilets and camping and things like that. But you got to do it. You take care of it. Kaibos are, you know. You can use the same thing for kibos, but they're, they're not my favorite either. Yeah. So anyways, well, thank you for joining me uh, for sharing <laughs> some tidbits. You know, we've gone to the deep oceans. We've gone to the depths of outhouses. The pits of despair. <laughs> <laughs> pits of despair, my gosh. <laughs> but thank you for being a part of this and for always giving me something new to think about. Oh, well, you're so very welcome. And. I appreciate all that you're doing in making this part of our life living better. We have better water to drink. We have better facilities to get rid of uh, sanitation, all because, you know, people are wanting to make the world better and make people's lives better. Yeah. And it's a crappy job, but somebody's got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Almost made it out. Almost made it out without a joke. All right. Well, thank you listeners for joining us and the links to all the articles and the book uh, will be in our show notes. And if you have any questions, 
you can just shoot them to me. Maybe you found something else that you want would think would make a great tidbit. Let us know. And once again, thank you, Mom Wanda, for joining us. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Huma Environmental, formerly Probiotic Solutions. We offer a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com. After November 1st, all of our online information will be at huma.us.